Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Pre-Annotators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today I'm excited to have an interview with Dr. Rebecca Hall, the writer of Wake, the Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts, with illustrator Hugo Martinez, out from publisher Simon & Schuster. Wake is one of my favorite graphic novels of 2021 to date, so I'm very excited to have the opportunity here to talk to Dr. Hall about this incredible, incredible work. Dr. Hall, then, uh, <laughs> early early in Wake, there's a visual of you in, in present-day New York mirrored against um, the colonial years, essentially, uh, in mm -hmm. the puddles in the streets. As your first time scripting a comic of, or a graphic novel of this length, you know, can you talk about how you collaborated on visuals and depicting these scenes with illustrator Hugo Martinez? What was that process like for you? Yeah, that was um, quite the steep learning curve for me. Um, you know, I, I had only ever written and published in academia before. So um, even though I read graphic novels and loved the medium, uh, writing for a visual medium was not something I'd ever done before. And when I tried to find um, resources that could teach me how to do it, you know, like that's kind of my approach, like find 20 books and read them. Yeah. Um, there, there, there really is very little out there on writing uh, for this medium if you're not the artist as well. Hmm. So the, the process of like collaborating with an artist um, uh, we ended up kind of having to, to wing it really. Um, and it was also, you know, Hugo's first big project. I mean, I think he had done some web comics before, but, um, so it was really kind of a learning curve for all of us. And yeah. how much time do we have? Cause I don't know how much detail you want. <laughs> You can go into detail. Yeah, no, these are usually between um, like like 40 minutes to an hour. So we got we got plenty okay. of time. Okay, so okay, so let's go a little bit more in depth. So um, when the book was bought by Simon and Schuster, um, and I realized, wow, this is like a big thing. And it is now my full time job for the next 12 months to like create this. Um, and I had very little confidence in my ability to write visually. Um, I, because I thought I just wasn't a visual person. Like if I picked up a, if I picked up a book that had pictures, um, I tended to look at the text and maybe I would look at the pictures, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. and, uh, so my agent actually connected me with two, um, young people who had uh, just graduated from RISD in comics art. And I kind of worked with them to start creating a script and storyboard for the book. Yeah. Um, and so I would talk about what I wanted to see and they would communicate it with Hugo. Um, we weren't, none of us were in the same place. We were all yeah. like doing this over time zones and, you know, virtually. Um, and as the process went on, I became more, confident in my ability to like actually do this that really we all are visual people <laughs> you know you can't not be in this world sure. um so but what um i got an appreciation for is how much work each page was you know mm -hmm. each each page was you know had multiple storyboards 
you know, multiple pencils, um, you know, some were harder than others. Um, some, you know, it's not like a normal thing to turn your dissertation into a graphic novel. And so some of these concepts were pretty hard to figure out how to convey visually. Um, yeah. So some were, was harder than others, but, but all of it was, was, uh, was a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. How, how did you know then that comics were the right medium for this story? I mean, you mentioned some fandom there, but kind of when did you align on like telling this as a graphic novel? Because like you said, it's, you know, it's a dissertation. There are other, it could just be a novel, right? What, what was it about comics that you thought like that was the way to get it across? Yeah. Um, like I said, I've always been a fan of the genre and how powerful it could be. Um, you know, particularly for me, um, two books that really resonate with me are is Art Spiegelman's Mouse, um, you know, and uh, and then the graphic novel Persepolis as well. <laughs> those are those are the two I had written down in my uh, in yeah. My... <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so, and and then I I was because the the documents uh, that the primary sources on this topic were so uh, fragmentary. It, yeah. It's a little hard to just sort of, you know, kind of write it as a book. Like there, there needed to be like a way to juxtapose the past and the present in order to tell the story. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I read a bunch of like Scott McCloud and you know things and, you know, um, that book Unflattening uh, to, um, understand the medium and what, what it could do. Yeah. And I kind of realized that this, I mean, it was more like, I want to do this. And then I was learning about it and it's like, Oh, right. This is why I want to do this. You know? Um, yeah. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. No, it's, it, it definitely works as, as a graphic novel. It's just, it, I was curious because I think we don't often see historical excavation, I think in mm -hmm. comics, which, you know, this is a very, personal story in many ways. And I, yeah. I think for readers, you know, so there's, there's, like you said, there's a juxtaposition here of the past of your historical research into, like the title says, the hidden history of women led slave revolts throughout, you know, American and colonial history. And then there's also your personal journey mm -hmm. of, you know, it's, it's memoirish in a sense of like, of actually trying to find this information, which is, is clearly such a difficult um, process. W when did you know, you wanted to incorporate as much of yourself in the work, sort of illustrating the historical process. Like, was that something that was clear to you from the jump or did that become clearer just as it got harder? Uh, so the research that I'm describing, that research process that's described in Wake um, occurred uh, almost like, what, 18 years ago uh, when I was doing my dissertation and then I published a couple uh like scholarly articles on the topic. Um, so um, the historical research had been complete uh, long before I thought to create a graphic novel. Um, I had no idea that my story was gonna be, but when I sat down to create the graphic novel, I didn't realize that my story was gonna be as prominent as it was. It became clear right away that I needed myself as a narrator. Um, yeah in order to deal with sort of the fragmentary nature of the primary sources. Um, and as I was writing that, I realized people needed to understand what my 
investment in this was like what what's the heart of the story what like drew me to this work um and and also i i wanted people to understand what the historical research process was like and the obstacles um that i faced but um you know, it's kind of one of those things where, like, you know, you plan to write run, one thing and then you end up writing something maybe completely not what you were expecting to write. <laughs> but that's yeah. like, that's the process. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, it, it, this work reminds me, too. I, I did an interview in this series not so long ago with uh, author Ken Quattro, a historian who did this remarkable work of, of historical excavation about uh, the black Americans who worked during the golden age of comics. And it's titled Invisible Men because it's this history that was non-existent in terms of documentation, um, which is very much what you're working on here, except that's like 1940s. So it's like way, right. you know, way modern comparatively. Right. Um, obviously, not obviously, but for readers who aren't familiar, uh, you document this very successfully in Wake. But can you speak a little bit about as a historian, like what it's like excavating, like you said, these fragmented stories that have been lost, just sort of the the approach you had to take in terms of like corralling all of this information. Cause I think there's maybe an assumption that like, Oh, like you just go and find the book and you, yeah. you know, like you read about it. Like what, what was it like trying to fragment all of these or, or put together all of these fragments of story? Right. I mean, that's what historians do. You know, it's, I think people have, um, and this has to do with how poorly history is taught. You know, if I could be the czar of how history was taught, I would have people begin right away, like uh, in primary school, you know, with yeah. with primary sources, you know. Um, mm. But I think that um, people have this I, I don't know what they this idea they have about what historians do. But um, I remember when I was uh, doing the visual research for this novel, because that was something I had to then go do, because when I was doing the academic work, I wasn't thinking visually at all. Uh, uh, and I, you know, met with a friend in, in, you know, in New York and, you know, and she was like, wow, this work you're doing, it's kind of like what an investigative reporter does. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I think investigative reporters do what historians do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, that, I mean, that's literally, um, the job. If you're, if you are, um, you know, at the PhD, if you're like a historian, um, is that you look for primary sources and uh, reconstruct a story. Um, what makes this particularly challenging, of course, is because um, it runs right into the problem of whose lives matter, whose lives do we narrate, get documented, are even considered something that you should chronicle. So those were like additional obstacles in dealing with, um, you know, enslaved women in the 1700s. Yeah, significant obstacles, which definitely comes through in this. I, I will, you know, this is this is an addendum, but I will get that petition started to make you czar of history. Uh, okay, we will, thank we will you. get that rolling here. Uh, <laughs> <shortly>. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so kind of what you just said, you know, you have 
One thing that's really struck me over the past year, especially, is how omnipresent the effects of slavery are today. Mm -hmm. And I think fictional works like um, Octavia E. Butler's Kindred is something that I've come to more recently, where it's it's made it so clear. Now you're writing here in Wake are some of the most effective I've read at at conveying this reality. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you think is the power or the impact of making those invisible forces visible in the way that you kind of do throughout this work? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I mean, I think it's required for sanity, you know, I mean, it's required for my own personal sanity. I think yeah. it's required for this nation's sanity, you know, because you know, this haunting is not just my story or the story of black American descendants of enslaved people. Uh, it, this whole country is caught up in a kind of haunting and amnesia around uh, this legacy and its after effects. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's why why I think it's crucial. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think it definitely, it helps, I think, to see that reality. Now, one of the, the key components of this work and your your historical research and also the way that you are able to tell the story on such a personal level is that one of the findings here is the more women on slave ships, the more likely there was a revolt. And one of the, I think, you know, misconceptions that, that you're working against as you're uncovering information is just like the assumption that, oh, only enslaved men were involved in these sorts of things, right? And And there's all this historical evidence that, you know, says otherwise, um, which you have to go and find. This is something you're set on interrogating from the beginning. I'm curious, like what surprised you the most in your sort of findings and in the data that you did find? Was there anything that really took you aback in terms of just like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Um, I mean, this is kind of, you know, this is, where we get into historiography, which is a very sort of uh, advanced historian, nerdy, geeky thing. Uh, another thing, if I'm the czar of history education, I would start teaching historiography, you know, in high school. At, you know, but historiography is, I mean, we take entire courses of, on that in graduate school. It's, you know, historical method, but it's also kind of the philosophy of history and looking at how history is written and the context it's written in. and uh, and I think what surprised me the most was how invested the historiography was in this um, idea that that this particular type of resistance coordinated acts of, you know, violent armed resistance uh, was like a male preserve. Despite the fact that there were primary sources that showed that it wasn't true, so uh, it, it kind of really drove home for me the way in which you know history is always written in a in a context, you know, like a social socio political context, and also in conversation with other histories, other historians, previous historians, and I think this process really made me understand how powerful that is and how it can really um, hide what's right in front of people's faces. Um, I don't know if that, if that makes, if that makes sense, you know, yeah. and, and I think, you know, when studying 
you know, the his, studying slave resistance and its history in, in the United States, you know, for a long time, really until, you know, the late 60s, the people who wrote the history of slavery were basically, um, you know, I mean, in the mainstream, in the academy, like, it, you know, was is that, you know, taught that history, that slavery was this benign institution and it was a civilizing force for for black people. And that's why there was no resistance to slavery in the United States. And sometimes they would make some comparison to like, you know, unlike that sort of really cruel kind of slavery that happened in the Caribbean or in South America. Um, and, uh, you know, and when people, like, you know, around, you know, the civil rights era and people, historians started to, you know, some African-American historians are like entering the academy and, you know, and progressive historians um, in general were starting to question that, <laughs> you know, like, and they're like, no, actually there was resistance constantly. And there were actually hundreds of slave revolts also in, in British America and what would become the United States. Um, but at the same time, they were involved in the broader so, sort of socio-political context uh, of this discourse that African-Americans uh, were not succeeding in America because their gender roles were dysfunctional. You know, um, that their uh, women were matriarchal and emasculating and, you know, and, you know, people would, I don't know if you're familiar with the Moynihan report. This is like a particular type of discourse that is just really sticky. It's amazing how long this stuff lasts. But, um, you know, it was like this happened in slavery, unfortunately, but, you know, but this is what's causing, you know, poverty among black people today. It's not poverty or racism. It's it's these distorted gender roles. And so people, you know, historians were writing in this in this milieu and they were, you know, writing against it. And they were saying things like literally you can look at books you know, history books on slavery roles written at this time saying, you know, of course women didn't undermine their men by participating in this type of resistance. This is a manly type of resistance or, mm. or, you know, of course enslaved women occupied this private sphere in the new world, just as they had in the old, like just these complete nonsensical statements. Um, and, you know, and at the same time you get, you know, some of the more sexist elements of like, you know, civil rights organizing or, you know, the Black Panther Party were like, you know, step 10 feet behind your man, you know, walk 10 feet behind your man, don't undermine him. And um, so all of this is sort of being excavated in this in this broader sociopolitical uh, context. Yeah. Um, and then there's, you know, a move towards feminist, you know, feminist histories and historians who are, are who want to look at women's agency in general. And they're like, OK, all right, we hear you. But women did resist slavery. They're, the ways they resisted it aren't, aren't as maybe as like romantic and colorful as these big revolts, but it was just as powerful, if not more so, you know, day-to-day -day resistance, you know, arsons and, you know, breaking tools and feigning illness and whatever, you know. Uh, and I'm like, that's great. That kind of resistance needs to be uncovered and held up. Um, but people didn't go back and question the primary assumption that women weren't involved in these other kinds of the other kinds of resistance of slave revolt. Yeah. 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 No, it's fascinating. And, and that's so much of what, you know, we read in wake is, is that they did that those revolts were 
did involve women, um, which it, it almost it, it, the way there's one point in the the graphic novel, especially where it it almost seems so obvious because you point out that on on a lot of the revolts would happen on ships while they were traveling, you know, across the ocean. And, you know, you point out that like, well, the women were left basically oftentimes like free to roam, essentially, because the their, you know, enslavers also viewed them as less likely to revolt. But then because they kept doing that, they kept revolting. And it's it's almost I mean, it's such a horrific thing to be looking at, but it's like it's almost comical, like how clueless they are, Mm -hmm. you know, because because you want to see the enslavers lose like, you know, that's not how history plays out here for right. for too long but it's like you want to see them lose and it's like they keep leaving them open to revolting opportunities and and then reading it the way that you portray it it's like oh yeah of course of course women would have been involved and would right. have would have you know resisted this like it just makes so much sense right um was there what was the the hardest blocker for you in terms of the information or story that you felt like the closest to like the closest to having good like you just had it nailed but you couldn't get those final pieces because there's a lot in here in the story about the forces today that block you from excavating some of this history it's like this information might more information might exist but you couldn't get to it what what was the toughest one for you wow it's hard to narrow that down i have to say Um, sort of on the kind of a bigger scale um the so the again to the issue of slave ship revolts. Um, I just wanted to say to, in response to what you just said too, that, you know, the historians who discovered that there were revolts on one in 10 slave ships uh, to the surprise of, of many, and that the more like the more women on the ship, the more likely there would be a revolt. Mm-hmm. That was work that was done by historians before me, quantitative historians, you know, uh, but they dismissed that work because they dismissed their own finding about the more women on the ship, the more likely to be a revolt because they were caught in this sticky historiography that like, well, women weren't involved in this kind of resistance. So this must be kind of a fluke. Um, I really want, wanted to ac- I really want to access um, more documentation of slave ship revolts and an important way to get at that. And this is part of the, <laughs> investigative journalism of the historian's craft, especially in, in this sort of like earlier time period, is that you you have to get at this stuff at really weird angles. And like insurance was a, is a big important angle um, because the, uh, a lot of the documentation of what occurred on slave ships and revolts on slave ships was connected to the industry of insuring the slave trade. Um, and particularly for my purposes, insure, insuring against, you know, what maritime insurers called the insurrection of cargo, right? which is the, the term for a slave revolt. And so I wanted to get access to the records of Lloyd's of London, which was the big maritime insurer at this time. And, um, and in order to excavate these stories, uh, not to sue them for money damages, you know, but, but they're like, this is a private corporate archive and they have no obligation to give me access to it. Um, and that was very frustrating, you know, and I still would like access to it. Uh, I'm not, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but so there's that. And then, you know, kind of like a, a more smaller 
at more kind of like was, you know, this revolt that I uncovered that occurred in 1708 in what's now Queens, where I couldn't even find the name of the woman who led that revolt yeah. um, through a combination of, you know, being denied access to archives because of racism to the vagaries of what documents are preserved and not over hundreds of years. Um, and so it be, that became, you know, a very fragmented story that had to be, I had to really kind of triangulate it in order to, to kind of re recover it at all. Yeah. Um, and what I did recover is quite fragmentary. Like I said, I don't have the name of the woman who led it. You know, she was referred to as like the Negro fiend or the Negro wench. Um, and I, I would, I would like to know, I would like to know her name. Uh, yeah. And that, and that would only happen uh, with access to the court records. I, I've subsequently tried to access them, and um, they they might not. It, it could be that they just don't exist anymore. Uh, but I would need to spend quite a bit of time in Albany, uh, and to see if I can find these particular court records of the, you know, Court of Oye and Termine in 1708. If any of yeah. your listeners like find it, <laughs> hundred dollar <laughs> reward out for the person who can find those court records. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously, that would be amazing. No, it's uh, that whole process I found absolutely fascinating. Um, I, especially you know the trip you take to Lloyd's of London, mm -hmm. where you know you basically you're fighting through modern day racism, you know, pretty clearly portrayed, and then just the fact that they would even potentially have those documents was something that never occurred to me. You know, the insurers here of mm -hmm. slave ships, like that they would still exist and have those. What, what do you think is the case, if any, that they would make those documents available to a historian? I mean, aside from, I suppose, public relations and just like ethics, <laughs> which, which you would <laughs> want to come to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like what, what, what do you think would have to happen for them to, to let you in essentially? Yeah, I, I'm. I think what's happened in the past year, which I've had to get on top of, because the book was actually released in uh, the UK at the same time as it was here. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing a lot of interviews for um, UK press outlets and stuff, and and people have definitely, you know, zoomed in on this Lloyd's of London angle, you know. Yeah. And so I've I kind of, you know, after not really thinking about them for years and years kind of you know dialed in on sort of what they you know what they've been up to in the past year and it's the it's like one of those classic cynical examples of like corporate i don't know what you want to call it whitewashing um but you know after um george floyd was murdered by the um by the police you know and in this uh, moment of so-called racial recognizing, re reckoning, yeah, uh, you know, Lloyd's of London issued some statement about how um, they were going to work on their diversity and inclusion, and uh, like that was at all like the issue. <laughs> that wasn't the issue, but anyway, um, and you know, there's these things, you know, like that, you know. I'm not even asking to be included in that, 
you know, I want to see your records, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. And then they um, they put in an, an, an announcement that they were going to um, h- hire a private archivist to look at their archives to see if any of their artifacts are racist. And again, I don't care. You know, that's not, I don't, you know, like if you, and there was some mention of like some sword and some whatever, like, I don't care if someone decides a sword is racist, but you know, this is just not the discussion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you go to their website, they do a whole corporate history, like corporate histories are a big thing, you know, just like histories of the nation state. They're, they're this kind of triumphalist narrative, you know, and it's a big part of why these records are, are kept too. Um, but if you look at their website and their discussion of Lloyds of London's history in the uh, 1700s, um, it's this very, it doesn't mention the slave trade once. It, mm. you know, it's this very, again, like this very triumphalist narrative about this, this, this corporation. And, you know, it's not like this was a minor part of their business. This was a major part of how they came to be and yeah. how they made their money in this time period when almost 80% of the slave trade occurred, you know, of the 400 year period of the slave trade, 80% of it occurred in the 1700s. Yeah. And that was when England was basically in charge of it, you know, and it was a highly regulated legislated business practice. Um, and so, and then I checked like their commitment to diversity and inclusion or whatever, I clicked on it and got like a 404 error. So, I mean, they're not even maintaining whatever, I, who knows, you know, and, and it sounds like I'm like on the warpath or like I'm singling out Lloyd's of London. I mean, I'm not, it's just, you know, there are plenty of corporations. I don't think they're uniquely evil or anything. It's just the, you know, this is just how it happens, you know, how it yeah. goes. I don't think, yeah. I, I don't think they would ever let someone like me have access to their their archive yeah it's disappointing but but not surprising like you say i mean it's that they they're obviously them and and other corporations are just so afraid of owning that part of their histories Mm -hmm. you know absolutely absolutely in denial about it which is yeah disappointing well i mean they also i mean i think they also talked about some of their original um like founders or you know uh members of their corporation um that were slave owners that, you know, uh, were large slave owners in, Mm. in the Caribbean. Um, so they said, yes, this, this is actually true that, you know, this, this is something that we uh, are admitting to, but this issue of this, you know, this business practice and the insurance of the slave trade, I think that's more explosive somehow. Mm. Um, and again, from my perspective, I'm literally just trying to excavate stories. Um, you know, that's, that's what I want to do. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I think, I think we'd all like to see that. So given that that information is blocked, you know, throughout wake, you, you go into the process of a historical reconstruction of a number of these stories, right? You, like you said, with, um, I think you very good, uh, explanation where you're triangulating a story where you don't have all the information, you know, mm-hmm. necessarily, um, of these women warriors, as you, as you described leading a slave revolt, what would you say to people who, Basically, I guess, how would you explain sort of this process and like how it how it's a historical reconstruction and not necessarily like a speculative fiction, which I think could be a misinterpretation? Like, how do you how do you define that to um, to readers who might not totally get what's going on there? Right. 
So um, historical reconstruction is just history. That's what hist history is. That's what historians do. Um, you know, to the extent that that's speculative, then all history is speculative. You know, that, that, um, but there are a couple of points where the record completely falls silent and there's nothing even to triangulate anymore. Um, and so, and, and there's like about a chapter and a half total in the 10 chapters of the book where I then actually engage in what I call a uh, measured use of historical imagination. Yeah. Um, you know, with the 1712 revolt in New York City, you know, we have the names of, you know, some of the women involved from the court records, but we don't know <clears throat> really anything, you know, m much else about them, particularly like who they were, what they cared about, what motivated them, you know, the things you want to know about somebody. Yeah. Um, and so, and I clearly demarcate in the book, like, okay, this is now when I'm going to to use my imagination as a historian, because I don't want people to think that the other stuff, the other eight and a half chapters of the book are not uh, real or not history. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's important to like, so I bracket that it very carefully in the book, but I think it's also important for people to understand that, you know, in terms of being speculative, you know, every aspect of the, the speculation, you know, is grounded in, in very meticulous, uh, exhaustive, and dare I say exhausting, historical research, you know? Yeah. Like, for example, in the 1712 revolt, um, the, the governor, the colonial governor at the time, uh, is writing to the Queen's Privy Council and the Lords of Trade and explaining that the slaves had you know engaged in some like ritual that he describes as like tying themselves to secrecy uh by um you know sucking the blood of each other's hands i think that's what it was yeah uh and so uh in 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 the graphic novel i have the people meeting at a well to you know to engage in this uh oathing ceremony and there's much more detailed documentation. So, so the people, the enslaved people involved in this revolt in New York at the time were primary, primarily members of, of what we call the Gold Coast diaspora, the Akan diaspora. So people in what's now present day Ghana. Uh, but um, there's a lot more detailed documentation of revolts and oathing ceremonies in other places, like in Jamaica and other places where that had a large Akan majority. So I used the descriptions from those other places, you know, uh, to describe the oathing ceremony in New York. Yeah. Um, you know, every tree, every plant, every brick, everything, you know, like I didn't want the historians coming for me because I got the wrong tree, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's not, so I'm not exactly sure what people think when they think of speculative, but it's not, it's not really, yeah, uh, measured use of historical imagination. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm calling it. 
Yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense in the graphic novel, and I I don't mean it as a pejorative. Certainly, no, I think I'm the sure reason. You don't. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the reason I ask is there's I think with like documentaries and sort of like like a wave of like real like true crime podcasts, you know, like that genre of I think there's almost an expectation now with a lot of media that like oh this book will end with with you finding the the quote-unquote fiend's name and Mm -hmm. the full story right like that there will be that Mm -hmm. release of oh you actually got all this Mm -hmm. info and here's the exact story and the reality (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly exactly and and the reality is otherwise the reality is no that's that's what you're able to get and then you're able to like you said put all the context that you have from other histories together to to tell that story as closely Mm -hmm. and as detailed as you can essentially but it's but it's based on so much more information and knowledge than just like you know kind of having fun with like a short story like it's Mm -hmm. just not that at all um it with in terms of like getting the trees and the bricks and all that and and everything just down to the down to the minutiae um what was that process like with hugo martinez like were you (laughs) were you scripting out like just it like very very detailed you know like this needs to look like this 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 you know like what's how did that go yeah yeah well, I mean, he was just completely on board with this process. Like he, he was, you know, he's not a historian, but he was, he was, uh, I don't know if enjoying is the right word, but he was definitely like down for it, you know? Yeah. Uh, like one of the, the women, um, Sarah, who was uh, convicted of involvement in the 1712 revolt, um, I knew who uh, her owner was and that he was a rope maker. So when we were putting the part of the story that we, you know, the, the, you know, that we were sort of, I was more imagining, you know, there was, there was a scene where she was going to be in the place, you know, where, where she lived and worked. I mean, people's work and life, you know, it's not like they went to the office, you know, like people lived in their work. Um, and so, like, we started researching, like, well, what does a rope making factory look like in 1700? And, um, you know, I looked a little bit, but then Hugo went for a deep dive. Like, I, you know, I had to like pull him back. I was like, uh, you know, <laughs> enough with the ropes. Like, you know, all that work for like one panel, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, some of it was like kind of, you know, a really interesting exercise in, in excavation because, you know, there's no photographs of New York in 1700, obviously. Um, and um, so if I want to find things like, well, what does a street look like? What, what, what was like a street scene be like? Um, you know, I was like combing the documents of like New York City's common council, which is sort of like a city council now and the like yeah. ordinances they would pass like you know you know imagine in like sort of ye old 1700s speak like you know we're tired of you people letting these weeds grow around your house like we're passing an ordinance right now that you mm-hmm. have to like clean up the weeds you know so it's like oh cool so we know that this neighborhood was particularly pro- you know people were more lax about their weed control so like if we're when we're sit- situated in this neighborhood we're going to show more weeds You know what I mean? Like it was this kind of thing, like, or some ordinance that said, you know, uh, it is the responsibility of every third household to 
hang out a candle lantern uh, on every night that's not the full of the moon in order to light the street, you know? So then it's mm. like, oh, okay, so now we know how they lit the street, you know? Or this great one where they kept, like, uh, punish, like, describing the penalties that were going to be uh, enacted against the city watch, which was uh, because they kept, people kept showing up really drunk to their shift. Um, so you get these sort of ideas and, you know, visuals and sort of general atmospheric sense, senses that you need in order to create a visual narrative in these very bizarre places. Yeah. 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 No, that's, interesting. that's fascinating. It's, I, I think that's, that's really great context. That's specifics of like, of how that, how that comes to life. Um, cause it is, we just take for granted so much of like, oh yeah, you just like Google image search of what right, right, like. right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, you can't do that with everything. Mm -hmm. Um, all right, great. So now that the work is out, it's been getting a lot of press and a lot of really good press. I've seen things yeah. like uh, Steph Curry selecting the graphic novel yeah. or a book club, which is super cool. What's it What's it been like for you in the wake of Wake? I mean, yeah. like, you know, now that you have the book out and you're you're having all this, um, you know, interactions and interviews, like how how has that experience been? And, and has it been, you know, gratifying for you to see it, see it out in the world? It's been incredibly gratifying and also incredibly exhausting. I mean, this is yeah. not like my thing like doing interviews uh, like sure. it's i'm a historian you know <laughs> so <laughs> I, I you know just trying to like you know and i'm actually like working on a second graphic novel uh so i'm in new york at the schomburg as a visiting scholar at schomburg doing research uh on um black women and emancipation so like civil war reconstruction um mm. So all of that kind of came to a screeching halt uh, with all of the sort of press and publicity. Yeah. Um, but I think, and I think it's, I think it's really great. And I, I, what, what is, I've been really satisfied with is that I feel like people are getting the book, you know, like um, the reviews of it are very um, sophisticated, you know, like, it's a weird book. It's a weird project to tell these sort of nesting stories, you know, that overlap past and present and dealing with current issues of racism and, uh, you know, slavery. And I, I mean, and dealing with what it means to be in the wake of, of, of slavery. Um, it's a complex narrative and, um, I feel like people are completely getting it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. That's good. I mean, I think I think a lot of readers, definitely myself, just from my personal journey, like I'm more open to all of these, all of this history that I don't know about. And there's just mm -hmm. an appetite for for learning about it. And for me, it's I read a bazillion comics, so I'm like seeking out as many as I can find mm -hmm. that that have good information in it. And Wake is, like I said, it's one of my favorites of the year because it is it is stories that I think are just absolutely essential. And I I think one thing that definitely, and I, I touched on this a bit in the intro, but I think one thing you do incredibly well here is ex explain what it means to live in the wake of slavery in mm. in ways that are poignant and very succinct. I think that's a difficult, like you said, it's a difficult, it's complex context and a complex thought, essentially, because, you know, there's, we grew up or I grew up in, in schooling that essentially is, oh, this happened hundreds of years ago mm -hmm. and it's better now. <laughs> And I think you're very succinctly uh, explained, you know, ways that it is not. And I, I think that's increasingly clear. Like um, what? So, like an example of like of what? Uh, there's actually a quote I, I wrote down here uh, where it says, 
Like invisible forces have shaped everything around you, but you've lost the words to describe them. This is what it means to live in the wake of slavery. Mm -hmm. And I think like that's a very poetic way of, of saying that just like, there's just always this force around you. There's always mm -hmm. this, this thing like on the peripheral of your vision yeah. that you can't, you know, it's just, it's omnipresent. It's always there. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's the thing that definitely as, as a, you know, a white man, I take for granted and have all my life, but now mm -hmm. I'm, I'm at least, uh, at least I can like begin to understand, I, I think. Right. Um, and I think that, I, I think that's one of the things that's really powerful about the graphic, um, medium is that, I mean, there are a lot of illustrated histories out there where you've got text and then you've got some illustrations to go with it. But mm -hmm. I think what makes these complex, intense concepts accessible to people um, who might not have personally experienced it, um, or even people who have but don't know how to describe it, uh, is the way that text and image work in the graphic medium. Yeah. Um, and I just don't see how that would work in another, in another medium, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. No, it would have been fairly difficult for sure. So, so you mentioned you're working on another graphic novel yeah. um, or, or going to be <laughs> once this interview is concluded. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what can you tease out about like kind of what, what readers should expect and, and how that journey is going? Yeah. Well, I mean, the research process has been like a dream compared to uh, the the last experience uh, because yeah. I've been a scholar at the Schomburg, which is an incredibly supportive environment and uh, access to amazing archives and, you know, 1800s, a lot more sources than 1700s. Um, but this is probably not the like nerdy stuff you were just asking me to <laughs> share with you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I'm really interested in looking at uh, how enslaved people generally, but women in particular sort of took their own freedom in the process of emancipation. You know, we have all of this and ironically with this whole Juneteenth thing, which is a, a whole nother discussion, but this, this sort of, idea that you know Lincoln came in and freed the slaves um, is I think a really uh, does a disservice to history and also our understanding of what is going on today um, and so I'm doing I'm like finding stuff and, and like the sources are a lot of really whiny uh, slave owning women like plantation mistresses who uh are complaining about how uppity their slaves have suddenly gotten. And it, some of the stories are just, I mean, they're hysterical. I think they're hysterical, but I think it's kind of like a way that you just have to chuckle because work is, it can be really depressing otherwise, but it's yeah. like, Oh, they've like killed all the livestock and cooked it and had a huge feast, you know, <laughs> and, or they stole all the furniture out of the big house and put it in their cabins or, you know, they're like writing each other back and forth. Like, can you believe this is happening? Like, Oh my God, you know, this is, I yeah. thought they, you know, it's just, so I call them my whiny slave owning Karens. So that's my, that's my like main source for this, this, uh, current, uh, yeah. graphic novel. Yeah. And they graciously documented what was happening for you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, cool. Well, I, I really look forward to that. Um, are you, are you working with Hugo again or do you have a, a different yes. artist involved? Okay. Yeah, definitely. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Once you got something good, you don't mess with it. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's great. 
Awesome. All right, uh, Dr. Hall, this was a, a fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk to me. I think everybody should definitely check out Wake the Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts. We'll include links, of course, in the show notes. And uh, like I said, in other places on Comic Book Herald. Um, where where should people look for you? Where should they find more info from you, uh, you know, on social or website or whatever you got? Right. So the only social media I do is Twitter. Um, and it's at Wake Revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a website, which, you know, I don't know how to keep updated because, but anyway, it's, uh, it's, there's important stuff on there, like photos of some of the sources in mm-hmm. Wake, which be, um, and that website is rebhallphd.org. Okay, perfect. Yeah. We'll include that in the show notes as well. Awesome. Yeah. yeah no, thanks, this was thanks, great. Dave, thank you for thinking of me and doing this interview. It was fun. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure.